how in today's market companies looking at compensation both cash and stock at different stages of head of finance hires typically finance leaders who work within this area aren't just money motivated now typically when you work in most fields the main driver for people is quite often money. when do you think a company should hire a cfo one of the trends that i've been seeing more and more probably over the last few years is startups are now starting to bring in their first finance hire far earlier than ever before where we see a lot of pressure from resumes starting to come in is whereby companies want to ensure that the person within their interview process is serious about making a move. Uh, but those would be the big things for me, fundraising, exit, and scaling. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Strategy of Finance podcast, where we celebrate the profession and the professionals in the world of finance. We endeavor to unpack their journeys, to understand what moves them, get inspired by their triumphs, learn from their experiences, and most of all, connect with them at a personal level. In a unique episode today, I'm joined by Daniel Himple, who leads the finance recruiting function at Hayes, which is one of the largest recruiting firms in the United States of America. In a career spanning over 14 years across UK and the USA, Dan has recruited literally hundreds of CFOs and finance professionals. Swimming through tons of data points during our conversation, we dive into a wide range of topics, including how should a company think about building a finance team? Who are the critical hires at different stages of evolution? When should they hire a CFO? What should they look for in a CFO candidate? What are the traits of a good CFO candidate? What are the CFOs looking for in companies today? What could make CFOs scale along with the scaling of the company? How to think through the recruitment process from a CFO or a finance person standpoint? And the elephant in the room, what are the CFO salary packages in the current environment? I bet today's episode has the highest tangible ROI on your time. Let's end the wait and listen on to learn, grow, and inspire. Hey, Dan. Welcome to Strategy of Finance podcast. Stoked to have you on. Hey, Rohit, thanks for having me. Why don't we start with your journey into recruitment, especially in the finance sector? It's uh, quite a different persona that we have on our podcast for the first time. So interesting um, to demystify. What do you do in terms of recruitment and uh, uh, specifically on your focus on the finance sector? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, wow. I mean, I've been doing this 14 years now. Uh, which is crazy. So uh, interestingly, I don't actually come from a finance background myself. Uh, I went to business school and uh, I came straight out of school and went straight into recruitment. Uh, so that's always been my background. So uh, I work for a large global headhunting firm, Hayes. Um, I've always worked for Hayes. Uh, so the first nine years of my career over in the UK, and I was then brought out here to New York, where I'm based now, to set up a new division. And I created our senior level finance function here in New York yeah, about six years ago now. So my background's always been in senior level finance recruitment. And what's really interesting is that here in New York, uh, or here across the US, I purely focus on working with the VC-backed startup market. So typically the, the way I work is I work in partnership with 
a ton of different VCs across the US and um, you know, they'll put me in touch with the startups they invest in and I work very closely with these startups to build out their finance functions. And uh, yeah, conversely, you know, I also partner with uh, a number of uh, CFOs and finance leaders, all who have expertise you know, within the, the startup field. Pretty exciting. How did you stumble upon this particular career? Is it something that you had an insight into as you were growing up one way or the other, or did it just happen? Yeah, I must admit, it just happens. I, I was probably had the misfortune of graduating from school back in 2009, uh, right in the midst of the, the financial crisis. So it probably wasn't one of the, the best years to be graduating. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, just at the time, it, it appealed to me because it gave me the opportunity to work in partnership with a variety of businesses and a variety of candidates. Um, it was just a very diverse and interesting role. And I, and I kind of just fell into it, you know, the the plan was to never build a career from it. Uh, I had a successful first year, second year, third year, um, and, and that's just snowballed. Uh, you know, like I'm saying, since then, I've had the opportunity to come out and set up a business abroad. Uh, you know, I now have a family out here. Um, you know, I run my own business out here. So, uh, yeah, I've certainly had no regrets and, and, and never looked back. In your view, what makes for a great recruiter? Look, for me, uh, the value of a great recruiter is all within their network and then the knowledge and the insights that come with their network. You know, a, a great recruiter will always specialize in one specific field and not be a generalist. So me, for example, on any given day, I might have conversations with 10 CFOs within this field. Uh, I might speak or meet with four or five different founders. Uh, I might then go and speak with two or three different uh, VCs or private equity firms. And I'm doing that each and every day, you know, five days a week, um, 12 months of the year. Now, over the course of 14 years, you can only imagine the amount of insight and data uh, and knowledge that I'm able to gather just from those conversations alone. And, and that really enables you to become an expert in this field. And I can then share that data and share that market knowledge when I'm guiding my candidates and, and guiding my clients. You know, the, uh, the, the key to a great recruiter is about being able to be consultative. You know, I'm not here to just send resumes and to find you a job. I'm here to be a consultant and, and guide you through these processes by sharing that insight. Interesting. You, of course, have spent your early years in London and then moved to New York. What are the differences between working in these two cities and uh, which one do you like more? <laughs> well, I, I actually started off my career in Bristol uh, in the UK. So I spent the first nine years in Bristol um, and then the last six years in, in Manhattan. Uh, look, for me, Manhattan is like nowhere else. Uh, the incredible thing about this city is the amount of people or population you have in such a tiny area. One of the things I adore about this city that you probably can't get anywhere else is that I can go and meet six or seven different people all in a day. You know, I'm based on Times Square and I can get anywhere in Manhattan within about 20 minutes maximum. Uh, now, again, in, in this small, tiny, tiny island, 
you have hundreds and hundreds of some of the most prestigious and prominent investors and VC and private equity firms and thousands upon thousands of uh, incredible CFOs. And, and I honestly don't think there's anywhere else in the world where you can get that amount of talent and that amount of network in, in, in such a small area. So I think for me, being a finance recruitment, other than maybe San Francisco, um, I wouldn't want to be based anywhere else. And I think I'd always choose New York for that reason. Makes sense. What is so exciting about this role that has kept you motivated all this time? <laughs> yeah, good question. Um, look, for me, uh, I adore the fact that I'm uh, always partnering with founders who are at the forefront of disrupting what we do in, in any given field. Um, yeah, I'm always at the forefront of like different ideas and different technology and, and, and different ways of doing things. You know, typically the founders that I work with are revolutionists and they're, they're experts in the field. Um, the other thing is um, typically finance leaders who work within this area aren't just money motivated. Now, typically when you work in most fields, the main driver for people is quite often money. Uh, and therefore, you spend a huge amount of your time talking about pay rises and salaries, and it comes a bit corporate and uh, maybe a bit demoralizing at times. Now, the interesting thing about working in the startup field, most CFOs or most finance leaders will be taking pay cuts to come here. Uh, most of them will come from big public accounting firms or public companies or, in particular, investment banks. I can guarantee uh, they all have earned more cash in those industries. The reason people come to this industry is because they want more job enrichment. Uh, they want to take on additional roles and responsibilities that enables them to uh, feel like they're having a real impact on the growth of the business. And they want to work for a business model or a vision that they're passionate about. And having those types of conversations is so much more enjoyable than just talking about cash and compensation. So, uh, it sounds like a cliche, but look, no two days are ever the same. You know, there's always a different idea or a different business model or a, a different vision out there that, 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 that keeps me on the edge of my seat. So yeah, it's, it's always exciting. I bet. Very interesting. You talked about the, some of the backgrounds of the modern time CFO. I wonder if you have any data, maybe anecdotes, um, in terms of the distribution of backgrounds of CFOs, say accountants, FPNA folks, curb dev folks, investment bankers, big four partners, right? Uh, what, what are you seeing these days? Yeah, I mean, I think the view on what a CFO is has very much evolved over the last 10 to 15 years. Now, I can always speak a lot more when it comes to finance leaders at fast growth tech companies. But if you think historically, uh, a CFO was always seen as almost a glorified controller. You know, uh, the finance function within the business was seen as a cost center. Uh, it was someone that closed your books and ensured you had enough cash. Maybe that was it. Uh, and therefore, look, typically the profile of most CFOs was someone who came from an outstanding uh, accounting background and was CPA qualified. Nowadays, a CFO is seen as a strategic thought partner. You know, it's someone that will be a thought partner to the founders and really help to create the strategic pathways that will grow the business. 
And therefore, naturally, the profile of a CFO has changed. You know, what I tend to see in this space is actually more finance leaders will come from consulting and investment banking backgrounds than, than maybe CPA backgrounds. Now, what, what I would stress is that doesn't by any mean um, mean that anyone who comes from a public accounting background and CPA qualified can't go on to be an outstanding CFO. They absolutely can. But uh, we are seeing that people now understand more the value add that a CFO can bring rather than just being a cost center. What are those bankers, consultants, big four partners really looking for in the CFO role and the companies that they are chasing to join? Um, because I can imagine, as you said, the, the role fulfillment. Um, I've been a banker myself. I've been a CFO. I wouldn't say that investment banking didn't do justice to fulfillment in your professional career, right? It's, it's, it's amazingly fulfilling when you're able to help a company go IPO and that makes an impact on every single employee. You help a company go raise money or do an M&A and that flow of capital you know, goes into every single person that has been working in that company and that changes their life, right? And so curious to understand, you know, what have you heard in terms of the people that you've worked with over the years? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'll go back to the point I stressed earlier. If you look at anyone that has spent three, four, five years in banking that is now looking to come and work at a startup, they're not doing that for cash. Um, you know, the, the, you can always guarantee they've earned a higher base and bonus within those industries. Uh, the reason they want to do it is, is quite often so they can get exposure to a wider remit of roles and responsibilities outside of just finance. All right. They might want to get exposure to operations, to sales, uh, uh, to, to anything that will help, help drive the business forward. But look, the, the modern CFO are the CEOs and the COOs of the future. Uh, and come to be a CFO at a startup, you are one of the key partners that's going to grow a business from early stage right up towards exit. So. The people that are coming into the industry from outside, they want to ensure that they've got a seat at the table and they want to ensure that they can help to create the strategic pathways that, that will grow that business. They don't want to just close the books and do the budgeting forecasting. So, yeah, they, they want to do a lot more than just traditional finance, which I would say is accounting and, and, and budgeting and forecasting. Makes sense. Um... When do you think a company should hire a CFO? Yeah, it's a, a question that I probably get asked four or five times each and every day. Now, <laughs> um, look, what I would say, one of the trends that I've been seeing more and more, probably over the last five years, and even more so over the last two years, is startups are now starting to bring in their first finance hire far earlier than ever before. If I look about six years ago, I would never partner with a company who were any earlier than maybe late stage Series B. And maybe it was when a company started to look at raising the, the first Series C that, that looked to really bring in a, a seasoned finance leader. Um, last year, to give you some example, uh, I saw 12-30% uh, of our business come from seed funded businesses who were starting to bring in their first finance leader. So we are seeing that earlier and earlier. 
But I think there's different factors that um, companies need to consider. But first and foremost, who are the founders? Uh, is there any finance capabilities across the founders? You know, have any of the founders uh, come from banking backgrounds or accountants themselves? Maybe they can delay bringing in that first finance hire. Now, typically within the startup world, most founders tend to really come from product or engineering or, or sales backgrounds. You know, and it's, it's rare that they'll have that finance acumen. So for those that go, we are seeing that trend earlier and earlier. Uh, what I would say is you don't want to go too heavy too early. So a seed, a series A business, they don't need a seasoned CFO. Uh, what they need is someone who is experienced enough that they can lead a finance function without mentorship and guidance, uh, but isn't so experienced that uh, they're going to need a team immediately. Because you know the earliest stage businesses need someone who can be an individual contributor, um, someone who can do the higher level strategic work, but also someone who can do the lower level grunt work. And you know that that's the real nuance in those in those early stage hires. Uh, but yeah, I think there's different factors for each business that that, that will dictate that. Makes a ton of sense. There are a lot of fractional accounting, fractional CFO firms out there, and it seems like a quite fledgling business specifically catering to these startups in the tech sector. How should one think about balancing, on one hand, maybe a fractional CFO or an accounting firm versus having a full-time in-house CFO? It's um, yeah, a, a dynamic that every single startup has to consider, you know, when you're your pre-revenue or you're doing less than $5 million in revenue, it's very hard to justify having a full-time in-house finance hire and having that fractional work from a, you know, a very experienced CFO who might be doing a day or, or two days a week is actually a far better return on investment. Uh, typically, I'd say in the US on average, most startups who use an outsourced bookkeeping and outsourced um, fractional CFO service we usually spend between 120 and 150K a year on that. Now, it gets to the point is, when do they stop getting the return on that investment? And when do they start to bring that higher in full time? The challenge is, at 120 or 150K, the, the level of person you can employ on a full-time basis is someone who's gonna to be too junior to lead that finance function on your own. You know, at that salary level, you're going to get a senior manager, uh, maybe a junior director. Now, for me personally, I think you're better off having a fractional CFO, someone who's very experienced, has 20 plus years experience, offering you guidance and support two to three days a week, than you are having a senior manager or an associate director who's never led the finance function um managing your finance uh function five days a week it usually is at the point when you're ready to start investing around 170 180k a year uh at that point is when you're able to bring in maybe a junior vp someone with about 10 to 12 years experience and that person should be someone who is confident to uh, sell the vision and sell your metrics to your investors it should be someone who can sit sort of sit alongside you and raise capital, and someone who's really got the autonomy to lead your finance function uh, on their own without you know, the guidance and uh, the mentorship from the founders. Uh, but also the benefit being that they will be 
junior uh, enough to be an individual contributor and uh, yeah, isn't someone who's going to need to have or, or demand to have a team of two or three in the first instance. In that case, I would imagine most companies are going to get folks who have not spent enough time in corporate finance already. They are, as you said, coming in from maybe consulting firms or investment banking firms or big fours. How should company... What should, again, what should companies look for in the trades in that kind of a VP finance and maybe roll forward a few more years, couple years, than the CFO that is coming in from either any of these backgrounds or someone who has spent some time in the corporate finance side? Yeah. So for me, if we're looking at that very first in-house finance side, and that, yeah, this is typically when you're anywhere between seed um, and, and Series B, sub 20 million in revenue. For me, the, 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 the very typical template profile that we should be going after is that 10 to 12 years experience mark. It's probably someone who spent the first three or four years of their career uh, in banking, uh, or if not, in, in, in public accounting. Uh, it's then someone who's gone and spent the next two to three years of their career at a, at a public technology company, or, or if not a public technology company, a best-in-class tech company. Uh, and the reason for that is we want to ensure that they can see what much larger scale looks like. We want to ensure that they've seen what best in class looks like. And look, the most important factor, we want them to have worked for a world-class CFO. That's the key to all of this. Uh, the best CFOs in this market are always people who have previously worked for an outstanding CFO and had that CFO as their mentor. So if they've gone to work for best in class technology company and seen what a, an incredible CFO can do, they can bring that knowledge. The final piece of the jigsaw, and the piece that's always the most important, is someone who's seen fast growth and scale. If, if I'm a startup and my strategic plan over the next three years is to go from 10 million in revenue to 50 million in revenue, and at the same time raise a Series B and a Series C, I want to hire someone who's been through that trajectory already. There's certain nuances and challenges that come with that type of growth that you just won't know unless you've already been through that journey. So typically what I'd be looking for is maybe someone who's been through that trajectory as a number two uh, and reported into a BPO financial CFO and they're now ready to come back down and do it as a number one. Um, but for me, yeah, any, any, any startup that are looking to hire a finance leader, the real key is ensuring they're hiring people who know the nuances and the challenge of working in a fast growth startup. Um, this is uh, just just to recap for everyone. This is amazing kind of career trajectory advice that you can get for any aspiring CFOs. As Dan is saying, spend three to four years in financial services firm, be it banking, be it consulting, be it big fours, then go and join one of the best tech companies, right? And basically work with the best of the best CFOs and kind of really hone your chops under him or her. And then lastly, the fourth thing is see high growth, right? If you have the mix of those four, you are very well suited at the end of that, whatever, six, seven, eight year period to be a VP finance or at least a senior director finance, at least the number one guy who's kind of leading the 
charge at a series A or a series B startup. That's amazing advice. Exactly. I mean, the other thing to consider is, I mean, it's never too late to do anything in your career. However, the longer that people will stay in banking for, uh, or even public accounting, the harder it is for them to then make that transition uh, into other industries because they're almost seen as institutionalized or actually you actually get to um, uh, a salary that it makes it even harder to leave. So, uh, you know, I, I, I speak to some incredible people who have spent the last 12, 13, 14 years with KPMG, with Goldman Sachs, and they are insanely smart and are able to bring a tremendous amount of knowledge it's so difficult for them, having done so long in that one industry, to then come and join join a startup or then go and join another industry. Now, if you go for the trajectory that I just mentioned, it doesn't. You're not stuck in any one area because you can still go back to banking if you wanted to. If you go if you go from a public technology company to a startup and the startup's not for you, you go back and work for a much larger technology company. And if you want to carry down the remit of working for early stage fast growth startups you've also got that option. So it really does open uh, the most amount of doors for you in your career. Makes a ton of sense. Why don't we take that same kind of question uh, in terms of, again, what should we look for in a CFO? Now, really someone who is going to take you through the scale-up phase to maybe, let's say, a IPO or an M&A, whatever exit that the company is seeking. If I was to look back and try and think of when I sit in front of a founder or I sit in front of a investor and they say to me, Dan, these are the key things that we want you to uh, want you to identify or these are the key experiences that we want you to try and find. It's going to be people who have been for a fundraise. And when I say been for a fundraise, been a pivotal part of a fundraise, you know, sat at the table, um, gone on the road shows, created the pitch deck. Um, the fundraising experience is crucial. Uh, anyone who's ever been through an exit, whether that be an IPO or a strategic sale, is never going to be short on offers. Um, in particular, if you go for an exit uh, at a business where you've spent two years or more at, you know, if, if you come into a business and they exit three months later, wow, that's incredible uh, if you get paid out on it. Uh, but you, you probably wouldn't have seen the journey that that company had been from. So if you spend if you, if you spend two years with a company and then go for an exit, yeah, you, you're never, ever going to be short on offers. And there's other things like, have you implemented technology? Yeah, have you been through an ERP implementation? Uh, have you helped to manage an audit? Have you built and scaled a team? Any finance and accounting leader within a fast growth startup is going to be leading process improvements and implementations. So they want people who've got tangible experience of building out a best-in-class function. Uh, but those would be the big things for me. Fundraising, exit, and scaling. Very interesting. Let's turn the tables a little bit and let's understand what are these CFOs looking for the companies that they want to join. AI is something that is quite hot these days, and I'm sure New York is buzzing with a lot of um, really cool AI startups. But what are you seeing? What are, are, are people seeking the hype? 
Are people seeking something that is more steady eddy? Are people seeking now, we have seen a kind of a whole year of uh, funding winter. Are they looking for something that is more profitable? What are people looking for? Yeah, I'll answer that in two ways. So first of all, what are CFOs or finance leaders seeking in roles? The, the key phrase that is always used is a seat at the table. A finance leader in a startup does not want to be a director. Crucially as well, they very rarely want to report into a COO or anyone else in the business who isn't the CEO. They want a direct line into the board, into the investors and into the founders. And they, they want to have that seat at the table when it comes to strategic decision making. So there's any startup out there who are thinking, how do we best build out this role to attract the strongest candidate is by ensuring that they um, can give that person a seat at the table. Uh, in terms of you know what CFOs are looking for or what candidates are looking for, you're right. It's completely changed. Everyone, given the turbulence in the market and uh, how difficult it is to currently raise capital and valuations, and and no one's really um, predicting there's going to be too many exits or IPOs in the next couple of years. People are now more risk averse. So if I look back to probably any time before coming out of covid and before april 2022 and everything changed everyone wants the, the earliest most riskiest thing possible uh i want to join as early as i can to get as much equity as i can and go for a big huge exit and uh the crazier the idea the better sign me up uh and actually yeah the higher the valuation and the more cash that they've raised even better than send me towards that now, naturally, that's changed, and people want something that's closer to profitability, uh, that maybe later stage. Later stage is seen as far less risky now. Uh, I find it harder to pitch the earlier stage companies now than I did before, and uh, yeah, people want to make sure the company haven't raised too much capital and they don't have an obscene valuation. So there's definitely less appetite for risk out there for sure. Have you, what have you seen the timelines of your recruiting assignments um, kind of changing over the years? Can you give us some data on that? In the last two years, uh, our average timeline from uh, registering a, a role to filling uh, a VP of Finance or CFO has increased from eight to 10 weeks. Uh, and when I look at maybe the reasons for that, uh, Recruiting is more challenging during a turbulent market. And this is where I try and guide a lot of my founders and a lot of my investors on. You would naturally think, hey, we're going for a turbulent economy, less companies are recruiting, there's headcount cuts galore, recruiting should be far easier. So we should be able to recruit a lot quicker. Uh, it's actually the opposite and recruitment becomes far trickier. The reason for that, if we go back to just coming out of COVID and you have the great resignation and there's this huge boom of recruitment. Now in that market, most of the candidates who were really, really happy in their jobs would say, wow, I'm happy, I'm not looking, but yes, it's great thing going on out there and people are making extra 30, 40K and there's 20 different opportunities out there. Screw it, I'm gonna take a look. Yeah, let, let me get into a few processes. Let me see what's out there. During times like this, when there's a bit more turbulent and there's fear in the market, a lot of candidates' mentalities might be, I'm not particularly fulfilled in my role. 
But man, I, I just feel lucky to have a job. There's no way I'm going to take a risk and move now. Because if I, if I if I take the wrong opportunity now and I end up back on the job market in six months' time when maybe things are worse, you know, that, that could be brutal. So that fear and that lack of confidence actually slows down the job market and means that attracting candidates is, is even harder. Um, what I would also say is, uh, especially for finance, when we look at the amount of head cut, cut, the head cut counts that happened, finance wasn't truly impacted. You know, when companies are trying to downsize, it was mainly sales and tech where they downsized from. Now, the great thing about being in finance is quite often you're all somewhat recession proof. Um, <laughs> when times are hard and you've got to do everything you can to have a tighter control of your budgets, to extend your runways, and do whatever you damn well can to raise capital, hey, lo and behold, it's your finance team that do that for you. So if there's one function you're gonna try and keep hold of, it is your finance function. So yeah, that, that's one advice to try and you know, guide people on that. It's actually harder to, to recruit right now. Um, on the other angle, what I would say is, look, given the, the advancements in technology, rec recruitment has sped up. Now, when I first started my role 14 years ago, there was no LinkedIn. And so if I was to start a, a headhunting process, there was various different databases and, and big books of yellow pages where I'd have to go down and, and map out every single different company and call that company to find out who their CFO was and um, just mapping out the market and finding out which CFOs work for which company. That might take me a month. Hey, with modern technology, that can take you a day to identify that. Um, yeah, we've also got uh, different advances in AI that can maybe deal with a, with a pre-screen or um, just filtering out different elements of the application process. And then obviously we've got the uh, <laughs> things like Zoom and Skype and you know doing what we're doing today. That means companies can interview candidates from all over the world pretty quickly. You know, back in the day before video calling, if you wanted a candidate to meet with three different people in your business on different days, well, that candidate would have to take off three different days from work. And uh, they might be able to do that over a month. They can now do that within three days. So technology itself has uh, expanded the candidate pool and vastly sped up the recruitment process. The counter argument to that be is, for candidates, technology has given them uh, a wider access to even more opportunities, the ability to speak with even more companies, and therefore they also have more choice, which uh, uh, makes recruitment easier and challenging. Makes a ton of sense on the technology choices. Um, but it's, it's quite surprising to me when you said that the tenure of filling a role has actually increased from eight to 10 weeks. Um, and as uh, as you were talking, I was thinking, of course, CFO um, or the you know finance breed in general has a different calculus of risk in their mind. Uh, you know, when they're investing sort of a company's capital versus when they are looking at their own finances versus when they are looking to change careers. I'm sure there is a, there is a different level of risk aversion that is coming in with that. I wonder, given that we have gone through a 
massive kind of shift in the valuation landscape and the multiples that are ascribed to different companies, it is also challenging for these candidates to leave a job, pay for their ESOPs, right? And then move on to another one. Have you heard that practicality also coming into the picture where people are saying, hey, I don't think I want to, you know, I'm ready to buy in to my vested stock just yet based on the valuation I've gotten it and so on. Yeah, it's it's a dynamic. Anyone who's granted any form of equity, it's always a dynamic that they're going to have to consider when leaving a company because potentially they're going to be leaving cash on the table. Uh, but that happens either way. If you're engaged in a, a new job opportunity and that new company offers you equity, which they will do, and you reject that opportunity to stay at your current company, well, you're still leaving equity on the table uh, somewhere. Uh, it just makes the decision-making process uh, far more difficult. Makes sense. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see what, you know, what a lot of companies do with their 4 and 9A uh, valuations over the next year. Um, a lot, a lot of a lot of people in this market joined companies two years ago when valuations were sky high, and uh, those valuations obviously no longer accurate. So a lot of people's equity is now vastly underwater, um, and those are the sort of people that are probably a little bit easier to make a move. Got it. It does seem like the number of CFO openings have increased dramatically over the last two to three years. Any any data, any anecdotes on that front that you can share? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, when I looked at Q4 of 23 in comparison to Q4 of 22, uh, we've seen a 22% increase in demand for, for CFOs or on new job recruits for, for CFOs. So that demand is definitely starting to return to the market. Um, this year starting off very busy. Uh, we're seeing more and more demand each and every week. So, yeah, like I, I always say I'm not an economist. Uh, I'm not an investor. I'm a recruiter. But just when I look at the data alone from um, you know, my own day-to-day -day job, the data would suggest that that confidence in hiring is returning to the market, especially in terms of CFOs. Going back to your point you mentioned over the last five years, yeah, um, I think that all comes down to is startups are now really starting to appreciate the true value add that a CFO can bring. Uh, a great CFO is always an incredible return on investment um, and not a cost center. A CFO is not a 300, 350k person who's going to close your books and do your accounting. Uh, a CFO the best CFOs will always say they will more than make up their salary within their first two, three months of the role, just given the insight um, that, that they can bring. So when you look at it like that, why would companies not make that investment earlier and earlier? Well, thank you. I've, uh, I've always thought that uh, a CFO's salary should be paid back by just the sheer amount of savings at a minimum that one can bring in the first few months uh being in the seat so yeah uh very cool do have you noticed the number of people in the finance operation also increasing or decreasing has there been any uh, has there been any trend over the last few years in terms of sheer number of people 
in finance function given the criticality of the function is increasing? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things that I would say we're absolutely seeing the size of finance teams within startups increasing. Now, that goes back to startups are now making their first finance hire earlier and earlier. Now, if you're a first in-house finance hire at a startup, absolutely, you're going to be an individual contributor. But for how long? You know, uh, maybe a year, maybe, maybe 18 months. But at some point, you're going to start pushing to build out your own team. Now, if you were making your first finance hire at Series B, maybe that person starts pushing to have an accounting manager, an FPA manager uh, at Series C. Or if you're making that hire at Seed, well, that, you're going to start building that team up at late stage Series A, late stage Series B. So naturally, the team evolves bigger and bigger. Um, the other dynamic that's coming in, there is a lot of thought going into there's no benefit in investing in a true CFO and not giving them the support they need to do to do the high level strategic work. And by that, I mean, if you hire a CFO, but they're an individual contributor and 70% of that person's time is spent on general ledger and month in close and some of the more grunt work, you are never going to get true value add from that CFO. You know, from a, for a CFO to really be effective when a fast growth company, uh, they're going to need a controller or, 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 or an accounting manager. Um, they're going to need some FP&A support. So by, give, by investing in that additional structure and support, you're not actually adding more cost. You're just ensuring the CFO is freed up to really add um, the true amount of value at uh, some of the more high-level strategic elements of the role. Um, and then I think the other dynamic is when we look at maybe some of the downfalls of these SPACs or, or, or companies whose um, uh, stock price capitulated uh, after IPO, look, there's, there's a number of reasons for that, and uh, that, that goes beyond my area of expertise. But one of the main criticisms that gets thrown out of these companies is they didn't build out their, their teams quick enough to operate as public companies. You know. Um, well, most great CFOs at public companies will tell you it will take at least two years to get public company ready. Well, two years before going IPO then, you should have a technical accounting manager, a financial reporting manager, and all the different roles that you would usually only attribute with being a public company. There's no point in making those hires six months before you buy IPOs. And again, that naturally meant that startups or pre-IPO companies were building out the finance and accounting teams earlier than ever before. Or we'll continue to do that once the uh, the appetite for IPOs returns. Hmm. Quite interesting. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think the companies get a lot of uh, advice from bankers in terms of starting their IPO readiness process a couple of years in advance. But uh, I think they should also hear from some of the recruiters that they should start building out the firm, uh, the, the, the function as well, a couple of years in advance. Um, I, I, I take all my advice from the CFOs I speak with. And there's nothing more scary to a CFO when I say, hey, I've got this amazing company, they're Series E, and they are blowing up, and they want to go, uh, they want to go public in two years. And every CFO goes, ah, that's going to be hell. Two years in Series C, that's way too quick. They don't know what they're letting themselves in for. Um, 
yeah, so that CFOs don't find that sexy and, and, and fun and exciting. They, they see that as overambitious and probably a, a lack of understanding at just um, a lack of understanding for maybe founders uh, uh, just how long it takes to truly get IPO ready. It always takes longer than you think. Yeah, it's. Uh, I must say as well, I most CFOs that I know only go for an IPO process once. <laughs> I I, uh, I very rarely see a CFO go for it once and say, "Hey, Dan, that was so much fun. Sign me up again." Uh, and here's the other challenge: whenever we're recruiting a CFO for a company who wants to go IPO, they say, "Dan, you must find us a CFO who's done an IPO process." Those guys, those guys and girls don't want to do it again. <laughs> so it's uh, that, that's always the most challenging role to hire. Now, I always equate that, uh, you know, taking a company public from a CFO standpoint to going from that zero to one journey for a founder. It's almost equivalent sort of pain and tenacity that you go through. Um, yeah, uh, makes a ton of sense. Tell us. In all these years, as you have interacted with a bunch of CFOs, a bunch of founder CEOs, VC firms, I'm sure you have heard a lot. Any patterns that you have noticed where the CFO hires have not worked and the CEO or the VC firm is coming to you and say, hey, Dan, we need to replace this guy. Can you find a replacement? What has happened in those scenarios where the hire has not worked. Yeah, the the most common traits where I mean it happens rarely, um, but it but it does happen. Um, uh, I, last year I made thirty seven different placements, and of which one didn't work out. So it it, it, it does happen. Um, wh when it doesn't work out, I, and I look to the reasons why, it's usually a number of things. The most common one will be the company haven't been transparent enough about the challenges within the business. Now, part of any recruitment process, when you're trying to attract the very best talent within this market, is selling the company and selling the growth and the trajectory and highlighting all the cool and sexy and amazing things. Now, the mistake you can make is you shy away from some of the challenges. Um, and a CFO would turn up on day one and go, Wow, you know, this wasn't what I expected. It is, uh, and that 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 naturally creates some friction pretty quickly. So it's always best to uh, be very clear about potential challenges or hurdles throughout the interview process. And hey, if it scares away a candidate, then we will write to have them not become the CFO. Um, the other thing is making sure that all parties are aligned on the strategic vision of the company. Now. If um, uh, you're hiring a CFO who believes that, hey, over the next three years, we should, we should just focus on getting to profitability uh, and scaling from there. But the idea behind the founders is grow at all, cash, uh, grow at all costs and burn through cash and, and raise crazy high valuations. That, 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 that's not going to work out. So we just need to ensure um, yeah, that the Strategic objectives of the business are, are aligned throughout that, that interview process. Um, again, going back to a point we made earlier, um, ensuring that the CFOs are given the resources that they need to be able to do the job, whether that be um, in terms of 
external consulting firms or external advisors, whether that be in terms of direct hires, or whether that be in terms of investments in different technologies. But I think those are all things that need to be agreed upon prior to, to offers and start dates. Um, but the biggest one is always, again, that communication and having a seat at the table. You know, if you hire a CFO and tell them, look, you're going to be a strategic thought partner, that CFO isn't included on every single strategic meeting and, and board meeting and, uh, and whatnot, and they feel that they're left out of the crucial conversations, uh, they're, they're going to become disillusioned and it's not going to work. Makes a ton of sense. Beyond kind of giving a seat at the table, can the CEOs or founders and the boards do anything specific in maybe the first, call it three odd months, to create an environment for the CFO to succeed at that company? A huge amount that can be done in the onboarding, but I think the key to success is within the interview process itself. Now, what you want to ensure is whether it's, whether it's a CFO or whether it's any executive in the business, ensure that they've met with every other single executive and every single person they're gonna be working in collaboration with and ensure they know how they can work closely and, and add value to those functions. Um, yeah, because that's gonna be, but the, the ability to work collaboratively with the other executives and the other functions in the business is going to be the way that the CFO most has success. Can they work closely with sales? Can they work closely with product? Um, ensuring it's going to be the sort of culture uh, and working dynamic that they're going to be able to excel in. Got it. Makes sense. Um... You certainly have a lot of experience with a lot of, uh, you know, helping building a lot of these finance functions. And we have touched upon a few of the hires that one should make as a seed or series A company, series B company. But can we go through four separate stages, seed, series A, series B, series C, private late stage, and then IPO public co, and think about the key roles, maybe two to three, key roles at each of those four stages that the companies should definitely look to hire to build a really world-class finance function yeah, yeah. let's start I, with yeah please so i i would usually say there's three stages of three times that startup will hire a finance leader from inception to ipo or, or to sale so you've got your very first in-house finance hire. That'll happen anywhere between seed and series B. Now your very first in-house finance hire, that's gonna be someone who's an individual contributor. And again, that's someone like we said, probably about anywhere between eight to 12 years experience. Um, typically that's probably someone who comes from more of a banking background. Not, not, not in all examples, but it's gonna be someone who isn't necessarily a CPA, but they have enough accounting knowledge to be dangerous. This is gonna be someone who's gonna be able to liaise with the auditors, uh, they're gonna be able to liaise with your external bookkeeper, and maybe at some point in the future, oversee the work of an accounting manager. But it's not necessarily gonna be someone who a CPA is gonna be able to close your books. It's gonna be someone who's gonna be able to build up your models. 
it's going to be able to be someone who's going to be able to lead your Series A and your Series B. And it's going to be someone who's experienced enough that you're going to have faith that they can sell the story and sell the vision of the business. Uh, but most importantly, someone who can be that individual contributor and it's experienced enough to lead the finance function from the ground up. That, that's usually your first hire. Your second hire uh, is usually when you're around 30, 40 million in revenue and usually around Series C, roughly. And this is someone, you may well give them the CFO title. Uh, you may call them a VP, SVP, and it might be someone who, um, uh, who you believe can, can grow into becoming the CFO. Now, this is the person that's going to take you from you know, your 30, 40 million in revenue to your 100 million in revenue and beyond. This is someone who is going to be able to start really scaling a team out and probably scaling a team to about five or six. You know, this is someone who has exposure to late stage fundraisers. Um, now, this is when that specific industry inside becomes really important. So this is going to be someone who understands uh, the needs of your customers, um, can create customer-centric solutions within the business to allow for scale. This is someone who's going to have a huge roller deck of investors. This is someone who has probably worked for a number of similar companies and can have a network of candidates that they can bring into the business from similar companies. But it's someone who's been able to say, hey, I can create the strategic pathways that can get you from 30 million to 100 million in revenue uh, and above. So it, this is the person who's going to take you from being still a startup to a, to a damn sizable business. This is your growth. And the first person is your building implementation, bring everything to house. Your second person is your growth and scale, taking you to a sizable business. So that's your, that's your second hire. Your third and final hire is your person who's going to lead the exit. Um, you know, so, and this is at the point where a company will start to maybe look at bringing a public company CFO. You know, if you're going to be looking to take the company public, yes, you're going to work very, very closely with the bankers who will guide you and advise you on that. But typically, they will be advising that you bring in a public company CFO, either someone who has gone through an IPO process or someone who knows um, what a best in class public company looks like and how you can uh, build out your process and your controls and build out your own structure of the business to enable you to accelerate and go for an IPO process, but most importantly, operate successfully as a public company. If you're not going down an IPO route, you're looking for, uh, and you're gonna to look to sell the business, then your final finance leader is someone who's gonna have led a sale process before and has gone through uh, a big sale or a big exit. And, and someone who's probably worked with businesses between 100 million to 200, 250 million and above. So yeah, I, I usually feel there's about three stages. Makes a ton of sense. There is kind of that inherent assumption or bias in some ways to say that the people who have joined at the earlier stage, in the building stage, aren't necessarily the one who are able to scale and get the company from that 20, 30 million to 100 million kind of, uh, uh, kind of a range, right? Kind of a scale. And then those people who were at that kind of 80, 100 million aren't necessarily the one who are going to be able to take the company public and then, you know, run it as a public company. Why do you think finance people or CFOs 
in general or head of finances let's just keep it because again all three of those uh, personas may not have the title why do you think head of finance struggles to scale beyond a certain scale it's because they don't have the knowledge or exposure of working at the next stage or at, at the next point in that company's trajectory but the biggest reason why is usually when they're misled when they're hired now a lot of the a lot of finance leaders who are hired at series a series b they'll often be told hey come join us and you might become our cfo and you can lead us through the exit and they do a great job in the company 10 million 20 million 30 million and they get to a certain point and the investors or the founders will say uh, this person isn't going to be the right person to lead us to 100 million because they've never done it there's certain nuances or certain scales they've not seen so let's bring in a more experienced leader um, who can guide them now if that first hire was told that they were going to be the finance leader and they're then told actually we're going to bring in a cfo above you they're, dis they're disillusioned they're frustrated and usually they're going to leave now if the if you hire someone and say hey you've got an incredible background at early stage companies we would love for you to be the person who's going to take us to 30 million revenue um hey look there's a chance you could become a cfo but it's probably more than likely that at some point um we'll hire a seasoned cfo but look the benefits to you at that point is you're going to have a mentor and someone who can be able to guide you and teach you and give you the exposure of working at a much larger scale that will enable you to be the cfo at a large stage company in the future so I think it's just about setting expectations um, at the beginning. I would actually push back a little on that and say, if someone has been able to get you to 30 million, 40 million, it isn't going to be that much different that this person has to do in terms of getting you to 70 million, 80 million, 100 million, right? Um, most of the times companies are going to be continuing to operate on the same set of products. Maybe they introduce one or two more. Uh, they are going to be sticking to their lanes in terms of the distribution, given something is already working, right? So it's all about making sure that the ROI on the channels are coming in properly and then you are able to milk the, those. And really scaling technology and processes from the perspective that you are able to support a 80 hundred million dollar um, scale of a business right shouldn't companies CFOs boards be able to do anything about bringing in outside advisors or some kind of a learning modalities to be able to really help that person scale yeah yeah for sure I mean look I am not campaigning that you can't take a company from series a to exit as a finance leader it, it, it does happen and it's tremendous when it does but if i also look at data points it happens very rarely uh I, I do agree um from speaking to my finance leaders it does seem like some of the nuances that come with growing revenue are, are, aren't completely different when i listen to what founders tell me about the challenges that uh that they face it can come to the scale of the team. You know, if you've always worked at a 10, 20 million dollar business, you're probably used to only having two direct reports. 
you know, when you're working for 50, 60, 70 million dollar business, you might have eight or nine direct reports. And even in terms of leadership abilities, that's vastly different. When you get to 50, 60 million dollars in revenue, that's when you're at the point of, hey, an exit is within the next two years. Uh, most investors will be saying, hey, that, that person that you hired at Series A, they've never led an exit. If uh, we're going to maximize the return on a sale, we want someone who's led that exit. So again, I'm not saying that it can't happen, but I'm talking probably some of the conversations that will happen um, behind closed doors as to why um, usually replacements are made, or usually someone who um, has been through that next trajectory is brought in uh, on top of them. Makes sense. Let's change gears a little bit. In your view, how much value would you attribute to having a broader exposure in terms of industries or sub-industries? Let's say within tech, someone has worked in SaaS company, e-commerce company, hardware company, and so on, versus just going deep. Uh, someone who has been a SaaS finance operator for, you know, in three different companies, right? Are there any merits to one versus the other? And when you advise companies on their prospective uh, finance hires, is there a particular kind of uh, persona that is more suited for a company versus the other? Maybe it's stage, maybe it's um, maybe it's the particular industry that they operate in. Uh, are there any any nuances there? I would always advise going as broad as you can at the very beginning of your career and start to go narrow as you get to the mid to the later stages of your career. Um, now, most CFOs would argue that if you're uh, a very high class, uh, best in class taxi CFO, then you can add value to a fintech, a SaaS, uh, or, or a hardware company. But what I would say personally in terms of uh, working very closely with founders and VCs who I pick up the remits from, they want someone who's specialized in that space for the last 10 years. A hardware company wants a CFO who's led hardware companies. They don't want to look at someone who's worked for SaaS companies. Um, so I'm not saying that you can't do it, but in terms of being able to get to the top excellence at roles, you are better off to specialize in a specific area. Look, fintech, for example, um, you know, very there's a huge amount of compliance and, and regulatory elements. Um, uh, your banking knowledge and financial services knowledge is going to need to be outstanding, and you, you you won't have that if you've always worked in SaaS. You know, in hardware, you're going to have your, your manufacturing and your and your cost of goods sold and and, and whatnot. Uh, in e-commerce, you're going to need to know about your your customer acquisition costs, your distribution, your distribution channels, your retail partnerships. Now, there's going to be many CFOs uh, listening to this who go, I could pick that all up within a matter of weeks. And absolutely, they could. They absolutely could. The challenge is that when a $80 million company are looking to invest in 350K, 400K in a CFO, they're not going to make that investment in someone who's going to learn it they're going to make that investment who's someone who's been there and done it four times. Um, the other thing is a CFO at a later stage company, um, typically the founders are hiring someone who's going to know just as much or if not more about the industry and about the customers 
for Maydu. Uh, they're also going to be hiring someone who can bring them in late stage industry specific investors within that specific field. Uh, they're also going to be hiring someone who has a network of candidates from previous companies that they can bring into the, uh, bring into the business. So if you are specialized in fintech or hardware or SaaS, you're going to be able to add value to those elements um, more effectively, uh, which makes you more marketable. Interesting. Go broad at the early part of your career and then go narrow as you grow up. A counter to that, or more of a demystifying question is, how does recruiters look at resumes or people who have spent maybe two years at three, four, five different companies? And it seems like this guy is not stable at all, right? This guy keeps on changing companies every two years. How should you juggle the broad experience versus that kind of bias that people might have? Um, the, the crazy thing in this industry is two years is now seen as tenure. <laughs> you know, um, going back to, to maybe our parents' generations, you know, most people might only work at two companies throughout their whole career. And it was very, maybe even one. Um, but uh, yeah, especially if you look at the startup landscape, uh, within two years, a company will look completely different. And the needs of that company and the type of people that they need will also be completely different. And therefore, it's natural for people to move on every two to three years. So um, what I would say is that two-year mark tends to be um, the yardstick for tenure. When people are moving on after 18 months, that's when it starts to get questioned. Now, in this industry, people will look past one brief stint possibly two, but when it's when people are making a move three times every 18 months, that, that can sometimes be questioned. Yeah, but it's usually your two-year mark that's seen as some level of tenure, which still seems wild to me. I mean, I've, uh, I've been in the same business for 14 years now. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah that, that, that's what tend to, uh, tends to be the view in this industry. Interesting. Um, let's say there are five companies at all of them at a series C stage, right? Each one in a different segment of tech, one in SaaS, another one in B2C e-commerce, third one, let's say FinTech, fourth one hardware, fifth one web 3.0, right? How would you advise them on a CFO or a head of finance hire? And would your advice differ for each one of those companies? Yeah. Uh, if I look at, if I take Web3 at first, so over the last three, four years, we've seen an explosion in Web3 and crypto and blockchain and, that, and now AI. Um, the challenge for those types of companies it's very difficult to go out and find people with long track records within those industries because they don't exist. Um, you know, if, if you're a web free company looking for a CFO now, you're not, you, you can't go and hire a CFO who's worked in web free for the last 10 years. Um, so the advice that I make to those companies is let's go and find someone who has a genuine passion for that industry, but also someone who's got a high risk tolerance and can work in ambiguity because they are very fast 
um, and evolving industries where the whole landscape is completely changing day to day. So if you're looking for a role that's going to give you consistency and security, uh, where you can do the same thing all the time, that's not the really industry for you. So do they have a passion for that industry and, and can they work in ambiguity and, and, and crazy fast paced change? Um, and so they're going to be the right people. Um, going back to the other industries, yeah, I refer back to the uh, topic that we just discussed about trying to find people who have industry specific knowledge. Um, where, a C where a CFO can bring the most amount of value is having just as much, if not more, industry specific knowledge um, than the founders themselves. You know, they should be able to create strategic pathways that have customer centric solutions. So if you're a hardware company, you know, you should uh, be able to, you know, you should be hiring someone who comes from you know, an extensive hardware manufacturing uh, and product led backgrounds, you know. Um, so I, yeah, I'd always recommend that we look, we start our search at, at someone who's just um, been embedded within that specific vertical. Makes a ton of sense. Um, let's talk about the elephant in the room, compensation, right? For tech companies, I would imagine stock is a large part of the compensation. At the early stages, anyways, cash is a little crunched, right? How in today's market, companies looking at compensation, both cash and stock, at different stages of head of finance hires? Um, yes, so if we're looking at a Series A, well, your first in-house finance hire, C, Series A, we're probably looking around 180 to 200K uh, on the base. Uh, and these are, these are, these are rough guides. Yeah, uh, I'm also talking about New York and the Bay Area, uh, other locations uh, with a lower cost of living will naturally be less. Uh, but if we look at your, 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 your big tech-focused cities, yeah, we're probably looking around 180k to 200 for the first hire. Uh, there's no bonus, but your equity is going to be slightly higher. You know, within those stage companies, you're probably pushing towards a whole point of equity. Um, usually about 0.75 um, would be a, uh, a fair basis. Um, when you start to look at maybe your second finance hire, um, you know, your, your VP of finance at a Series B company, um, we're probably looking at 250k um, and half a point of equity. Uh, if it's a late stage Series B and they're hiring a CFO, we're looking 300k, 350k, and a whole point of equity. Um, CFO at a Series C, um, obviously less equity because the valuation is going to be far higher. Uh, but we're looking about 350k, and that's where your bonus starts to become in. Yeah, it's usually about Series C when companies start to create a, a bonus scheme. Yeah, but uh, as you touched upon there, Rohi, look, the the wealth generator in any um, VC or, or PE-backed company that are looking to exit is always on the equity. Um, you are never seeing big, huge, high bases uh, in, in these types of companies. Not 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 the CFO level anyway. Got it. Makes a ton of sense. And then when we look at, let's say, the next level, uh, whether it's the VP or the senior director level, um, how is, what's the measure for that? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, at those types of levels, it's very hard to give exact ranges on equity because they, they will completely vary. But if I was to say, usually say it's around Series C where companies will start to build out the rest of their accounting function. Series B, Series C. So say the CFO is making 300 to 350K. The controller is probably making 250K. Um, and then you'll probably have an FP&A director um, who's making 200K. It could be a VP of finance in number two for, for the CFO. And again, they're making about 250K. Yeah. Makes a ton of sense. Have you seen a shift, whether increasing or decreasing uh, in terms of a trend on the equity portion over the last three, four years? It's worked both ways. So on one example, as we've gone into more of a turbulent market, candidates are naturally now starting to feel that there's going to be a less of a chance of an exit within the near future. So naturally, we'll place more of an emphasis on cash comp. The counter side would be that companies now, a lot of companies, especially those who haven't done 409A uh, valuations, are going to be having insanely high valuations. And therefore, you're going to want a higher percentage at that valuation to feel that you're going to get a return on your equity at the point of exit. So, yeah, in this market of high valuations, candidates want a higher percentage, but also at the same time will put a higher priority on, on cash, which means that they're pushing for more cash and more equity. Why not, right? <laughs> Are there any other terms from a contract perspective that... Uh... Are table stakes for people? Um, look, uh, most companies, in terms of their equity, uh, they'll offer a four-year vesting period with a one-year cliff. Uh, that, that tends to be very industry standard. Um, but no, other than that, not, none that I can I can particularly think of. Um, the great thing about this market is the access to data. So all VCs or calculate a vast amount of data across every single um, position and function within the business and, and pass um, their portfolio companies that data. So ev everyone in the industry kind of knows where each level or each banding of hire uh, should be at or the percentiles that banding will be at. Got it. Let's say I have three different potential CFO roles that have been offered to me. Do you have any framework in terms of how should I decide on which one to take? The CFOs who enjoy their role the most are the ones that have the best relationship with the founders. It's not the ones that work uh, for the most disruptive companies or take the biggest basis. It's that relationship with the founders. So if I was a CFO and I had three offers, I'd want to go for dinner with the found with, with each founder and try and figure out who do I have the best fiber connection with, who am I going to enjoy working with the most. I would try and speak to the rest of the executive team or I, I would try and batch on all those founders and to try and figure out what are they like as leaders. Um, I'd be trying to question those founders and really trying to figure out do they see finance as a direct report or do they see finance as a strategic floor partner? Because Again, the best founders and the most successful founders are people that say, 
hey, I'm aware of my own limitations. So I want to bring in, I want to bring in executives who can guide me on how to do this. Whereas the, the worst founders are the ones that go, hey, I'm a genius. This is my business. I want to bring in direct reports and dictate to people. So those are the sort of things that you're trying to figure out. The other element is, as we both know, the, big, the biggest wealth generator um, is the equity. So I would always, always uh, ask to sign an NDA and go through financials and projections as much as, as, much as you can. And you know, do you believe in their exit plans? Do you believe in their projections? Are they uh, in strong enough of a financial state where you believe um, that there is a chance of an exit and that your equity could be worth something? That's far more important than a company might give an extra 20K on the base. Makes sense. Can you debunk the taboo around salary negotiations? What percentage of people do actually do it? And what is the range of increase in compensation packages that you have noticed that those people who actually go through a good salary negotiation um, are able to get? If you asked me six, seven years ago when I was based in England, my answer would be no one negotiates their salary. What are you talking about? You're crazy. That's rude. Uh, if you ask me now, I spent six years in America, I would say every single person negotiates their salary. <laughs> um, I, 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 look, I think you absolutely should, uh, as we as we all know. Um, the, the, the only time to negotiate your salary is at offer stage. Um, it's pretty common that you might not be able to talk about a pay increase for at least a year, usually two years. So you want to ensure that when you're signing that offer, you're getting the very best deal possible. Um, and it's very, very rare that a company will come in at best and final at their first offer. Um, but for me, the question isn't whether or not you should negotiate. The question is, do you know, do you have enough market knowledge to know your worth? Because otherwise, what are you negotiating? So I just mentioned there that uh, founders or, or startup companies will have this incredible access to data where they know what people are worth. Make sure you've got that same data. Yeah, how big is your network? You know, do you regularly speak to people who are in higher positions? Do you speak to other CFOs? Do you speak? Do you have a wide network of investors and VCs who can also share that data with you? Make sure you know your, your market worth and then you can negotiate uh, you know, wh where you feel that you should be. Yeah, you, you never want to, um, yeah, it, the advice we give to candidates, you never want to over-negotiate. You know, you don't want to try and, uh... a, a classic example will sometimes be that a, a VP of finance will negotiate themselves a CFO salary or a CFO title when they're maybe not quite ready to be a CFO. Now, the challenge there is their expectations or the deliverables that the company, the founders and the investors want to achieve then skyrocket. They go from VP of finance outcomes to CFO outcomes. And if you're not ready to produce that, you've betted against yourself. And uh, you can often find yourself out of job in six to nine months. So you also don't want to sort of over-negotiate. Do you have any anecdote in terms of the craziest salary negotiation argument that you have heard? I had, no, I mean, look, fortunately, no wild ones. Uh, the, the craziest one that I can think of, 
there was a I'm not, I won't mention any names um, but there was a CFO I placed last year who um, joined the company and the plan was that the company would exit in four years so it was a four-year time horizon and the CFO was desperate for 350k and the, the CEO wouldn't budge um, gave him a, an extra 0.3% of equity rather than 50k and um, the company was actually acquired nine months after the big joins so uh, made uh, I don't want to put any figures on it but made a, a damn sight more <laughs> than the uh, the extra 50k wow uh, that is uh, some negotiation that worked that did not work in your favor but then uh, fortuitously did uh, at the end very interesting the good thing about this in like my specific industry and the access to data, no one's coming in and saying, hey, I want 500, I want 600, because everyone knows what the ranges are and where the percentiles are. Yeah. Um, th there was an element where, it, where during the great resignation coming out of COVID, we started to see graduates or junior candidates just give themselves uh, crazy high um, compensation expectations, but that's probably more the the lower junior end of the market. Yeah, got it. Let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about technology, right? You referenced a little bit in terms of how it has uh, influenced the recruiting process, but I want to see if you can elaborate a little bit, um, maybe on the qualification side or um, any other sort of uh, processes that you go through in the recruitment. Yeah, well, in terms of qualifications and, and finance leaders, I wouldn't say that a finance leader now needs any any different qualifications, but uh, a, a modern CFO should be able to make recommendations uh, to the business for technology innovations that will help the business better perform. You know, the, a modern CFO will be at the forefront of technology. I'm not just talking about uh, accounting processes. Um, that, that could be any technology in the business that will, that will help them scale. Um, you know, from, from my own end, um, yeah, again, probably going back to the points I mentioned earlier, every recruiter uh, will say LinkedIn first. You know, it's uh, the, the to, to try and go back to the days of um, imagining where we uh, we didn't have to use LinkedIn was crazy. Um, I, I cover I cover the whole of the US, so I, I'm based in New York, um, but my remit are, are right across the US. You know, about forty percent of the work that I do is in the Bay Area, so technology means that I can meet with multiple candidates and clients in the Bay Area um, throughout the day. You know, just by doing things like this. So that enables me to be far more efficient and I have far better relationships in, in my job than ever before. Um, there's also now multiple AI tools that uh, allow my candidate generation, my market mapping, uh, my interview note taking, uh, my profile writing services um, that again make my job uh, far easier. And, and then these are things that have only really started to happen in the last six to nine months. So, each and every day, I'm seeing a different product or program that I'm trying to uh, get involved with to, to make my job easier. Makes sense. Let's unpack your work a little bit more. Tell us, how does recruiting itself works? What is the typical process that you and your clients follow? 
Yeah, okay. So um, if I was to talk you from the start and finish to a CFO hire with a startup, the very first uh, point of contact would be to go out and meet the founders and meet the investors. And what we're trying to decipher first and foremost is what is it we need? There's many different types of, of CFO. Um, and, and quite often, uh, a lot of founders, it's a person who hired a CFO. So, that, so they're not quite sure of the exact profile they should be looking for. You know, do we need someone who's got uh, a really strong public accounting background who's led an IPO? Do we need an M&A specialist? You know, do we need someone who can go out and raise you a ton of capital? Um, so the, the very first point of call I do is go out and meet the founders and investors, and I'll show them multiple case studies at CFOs that we've placed at very similar stage companies within their industry. Uh, what's worked well, what's not worked well, and, and, and how we um, best run that process. Uh, and the first thing we do is we build out the perfect profile of what we should be seeking. Uh, we then build out a job description for them. Uh, we've got our interview process for them. Um, and then from there, the first week of the search is what we call our market mapping. So uh, we go out and we research the market. So if, for example, it was a, a Series C hardware company that were looking to raise a Series D&E and then go public in two years, what we would do is we'd map out every single hardware company in the US uh, that have gone public in the last five years, every single hardware company that have raised Series DNA. And we would go out and we'd identify uh, every single VP of finance or CFOs that have worked for those companies in a period of time. So that, that gives us our, our, our potential candidate pool. Um, the next thing I'll do is I will uh, identify who I already know. Now, the great thing for me is I've been in this industry for 14 years. Um, I only ever recruit the CFOs. So you'll tend to find that actually a huge portion of candidates within that market mapping out of work with the multiple occasions. So I've already got a relationship there. Uh, the ones that I haven't, that's when we start a headhunting process. So I'll directly approach those candidates, whether that be through LinkedIn, I'll call them, I'll email them, just to tell them about this amazing opportunity. So the first stage is the first stage is generating excitement or generating interest in a role because the very best candidates in this market are going to be those that are passive, those that are actively looking. So you can't just call those people up and interview them. You have to say, wow, there's this amazing hardware company that's looking to go public in two years. These are the investors. Here's the founders. This is what they're disrupting. This is why I'm excited. I really think you should take a look at this opportunity. And we try and, try and generate their interest. Yeah, we try and do the founders justice by selling their business. The second stage is we then interview those candidates. You know, it, it, once, we, 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 once we've captured their interest, we want to ensure that they're going to be right for the rock in terms of technical abilities, cultural fit, soft skills, and so on. And then from there, we present the first shortlist. Um, yeah, we facilitate the interviews. Um, we help with the job offer, and we help with, it, with the onboarding. Very cool. During your interviews, what makes a candidate stand out? Is it more of the software things? Is it more of the technical things? What is it that you feel has clicked for you and something that has not clicked for you in terms of the personality that you feel like, hey, this is the right candidate for the CFO profile? 
for your technical for your technical skills it tends to be when they're able to demonstrate tangible outcomes that they've achieved in a business so they should be able to say hey i grew revenue i i played a very pivotal role in growing revenue from a to b i led this implementation i raised this fund i scaled this team and there's multiple examples of where they personally added value to a business rather than just crunch numbers. Uh, in terms of personality traits, uh, it's always that level of humbleness. Uh, I think in a startup, you have to be, you have to be humble. Yeah, you have to be a people's person. You're in a startup, you might be only one of 60 people and you need to be able to work collaboratively and cross-functionally. Um, you're going to be speaking to the board members and the CEO, but you're also going to be speaking to the admin assistants and the EAs and the, the more junior people. And unless you have that personality trait to communicate across the whole business, um, it's very, very hard to work with a startup. So yeah, a personality skills, humbleness, and then ability to just to demonstrate exactly where they've added value. The other thing is, do they display a genuine enthusiasm and excitement in the business you're speaking about? If you don't believe in the business model and the mission statement of a startup, there's no benefit in you working there. Because, I mean, look, 30 years ago, you know, even our parent generations, you went and worked for Coca-Cola or tobacco, and you got a big, huge paycheck, and you got great benefits, and that was fine. Whereas nowadays, you know, especially in a startup, you're not getting paid a huge amount of cash, and it can be damn long hours. There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. So you need to believe there's going to be an exit. So you need to have a passion for what they're trying to do. And if, if you don't, it, it very rarely works. Makes sense. Can we demystify resume? It seems to be the single most important document that can get you from one place to another, to the third one, to the fourth one. Um, and nobody seems to have a great understanding of what is a really, really good resume. Can you share any of your insights? So the first thing is, if we're looking for lower level junior roles, uh, whereby you're submitting a resume uh, for a job advert, I can guarantee that job advert will receive two to 300 resumes. Uh, of which 99% won't be relevant at all. So most resumes in any industry at any level will get glanced at for about 10 seconds. So please do not worry about having war and peace across three or four different pages about all these incredible things you've done. They're going to be looking at your job title, the type of business you work with, and then we're going to see, hey, in your roles and responsibilities, have you been able to articulate where you've added value? Um, th those are the key things. Now, fortunately, um, with the evolution of LinkedIn and online profiles and whatnot, um, especially in executive recruitment, we are now moving away from resumes. And really, people on their LinkedIn profile, their the LinkedIn profile should be an, an extension of their resume. Um, where we see a lot of pressure from resumes starting to come in is whereby companies want to ensure that the person within their interview process is serious about making a move. So you, know, you will quite often have 
candidates that are engaged in a job uh, interview process just to test the waters, you know, maybe, maybe to increase their own market knowledge. Maybe they're not really looking to make a move, but hey, they'll poke their head out there. Now, if you've got a business critical hire that you need to make within the next month, having those sorts of candidates within your interview process can be detrimental. So sometimes by saying, hey, I want a fully up-to-date two-page resume can help to filter out maybe candidates who aren't as serious. That's a really good point. Um... Yeah, I think especially in these kind of markets where everyone is fishing, just getting down in front of your laptop and doing like committing those two hours to update your resume um, is a great testament. Makes sense. Agreed. Agreed. Um, you, whenever you're recruiting sort of high level roles, whether it's finance or anyone else, right? Um, I'm sure there are some kind of common challenges that you face, right? Maybe it's personas, maybe it's expectations, maybe it's something else, right? Can you share a story of a particularly challenging recruiting experience that you have had? Um, last year, I worked very closely with a Series D fintech company, and they were looking to hire their first CFO. And the plan was that they were um, hoping to go public within two years, the holy grail. And to their credit, one of the things that they had learned or read uh, was that a lot of tech companies or a lot of companies build out these crazy long interview processes whereby there's 10, 11, 12 stages and you lose candidates' interests and candidates get frustrated and they withdraw. Um, and this is a business critical hire that they needed to make within two months. So they said, hey, we're going to go the opposite way. And we're going to have just a, a free stage interview process, and then we're going to extend an offer. And they'd used another exec search firm before me, and they'd been using them for four months and hadn't worked out. And they just kept, they had extended four offers and candidates kept rejecting it, and they couldn't fathom why. And you know, the advice and guidance that I gave them was, they weren't doing enough to sell the business or capture the interest of a CFO. Now, a CFO might only change, you might only have three CFO roles in your whole career, right? You never want to make the wrong move as a CFO because one short stint of a CFO, people always gonna say, hey, what happened there? What, you know, that was an executive level role and you're only there for six months. So you, and look, finance professionals tend to be risk adverse. So you're going to want to do as much due diligence as possible. So most CFOs aren't going to take a leap of faith after only three conversations. So I actually advised that we went the other way. And we extended the interview process. We didn't have any crazy or unnecessary um, task or, or, or meetings. But it was the first interview was an informal call with C the CEO. Previously, they had had the first conversation with one of their talent acquisition managers, and it was more of a generic, what 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 conversation are you looking for? Where do you live? How can you be in the office? That, 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 that doesn't, that's my job. I, I do that as a recruiter. That, that's not going to capture anyone's interest. The very first call should be directly with the CEO, and the CEO should say, hey, here's my vision for the company. Here's my vision for the role of CFO. This is how I like to partner with CFO. This is where CFO can add value. Then from the first conversation, you're captured excitement. Uh, from then on, um, the person should be meeting with the rest of the executives in the business 
that every executive should be guided that, hey, not only are you here to interview, but you're also here to sell the company. You know, um, if anyone isn't suitable, let's filter them out, but let's ensure that everyone's walking away from each conversation going, wow, this is a great company to work for. You know, uh, every single conversation on interview process should be twofold, interviewing and selling. Um, and then the final point, prior to work with me, they had been sending out a case study at the second stage. So candidates were having one conversation and then having to do a case study. And they were saying, hey, I'm, I'm happy in my role. I've only had one conversation. Why am I going to do a case study? Yeah, if, you, if you're going to do a case study as an interview process, do it right at the end of the process when you've done everything you can to capture the candidate's excitement and for them to go, wow, I, this is brilliant. I want to work with this company. Of course, I'll, I'll invest time in a case study. I'm a huge fan of uh, doing a case study or any kind of practical assignment for any single hire. Tell us how do you advise your clients in terms of approaching a practical assignment and an existing CFO moving from one company to another company. It's sort of given that they have the technical chops, right? And so what exactly are you trying to decipher from that practical assignment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I would, I personally would never give a CFO a technical example, a technical assessment. If someone's been a CFO for the last five years, I, I think you're going to belittle them if you're going to start asking them to build out a model or, uh, or, or build out a forecast. The other advice I give is you don't want to implement a case study too early. Um, the best candidates in this market are always those that are happy in their job and passive. So. If you have an open-ended conversation with a new company and then they ask you to spend three hours preparing a case study when you're not even looking, you're going to withdraw from the process. So you want to do it towards the end of the process. Typically, a great case study to have a CFO do is get them to build out and present how they would approach their first 90 days within the role. And that just helps you assess where they're going to add value, how well do they know your industry, how well do they know how to scale, and do they think strategically? Very cool. Um, what advice would you give to someone aspiring to become a CFO? Um, build out your network and go and work for world-class CFO. So I think if we go back to what I mentioned right at the beginning, I would try and get as wide a breadth of experience as possible at the very beginning of your career and try and touch on multiple different industries because you know, who knows where your passions lie. Um, what I would then do is constantly, constantly be building out your network, whether that be VCs, other finance professionals, founders. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that's where your knowledge and data is going to come from. But the most, the most important thing is go and do whatever you can to work for a world-class CFO. The best CFOs in this market have always worked for the best CFOs. Um, so try and get that mentorship uh it's fantastic and, and and cfos they tend to look after one another you know uh most great cfos that i i work with will still be mentoring four or five of their ex-colleagues and will still pass them around and recommend them and uh, uh into other processes makes sense last question before we move into the lightning round what are your top three predictions for 2024 i think we're going to see a continued focus on profitability um that growth at all costs uh mentality is gone out the window uh 
very simplistically, it's now more expensive to raise money, more expensive to borrow money. And therefore, you know, companies will be continuing to extend runways and, and focus on uh, profitability. I think looking at my data, we're going to see a, an increased demand in finance leaders. Uh, again, I'm not an economist. I'll never make any predictions as to what's going to happen in the economy. But my data suggests that confidence in the job market and confidence in hiring finance leaders is very quickly returning. Uh, and I think we'll continue to see an increased demand in companies hiring startup leaders, finance leaders even earlier. Very cool. Let's move on to our lightning round. Um, should be quite fun after all the heavy lifting that you have done. All that needs to happen here is I'm going to ask you quick questions and I need immediate responses. Okay. Uh, sweet or savory? Uh, savory. Books or podcasts? Podcast. Are you a thinker or a doer? Doer. Introvert or extrovert? Extrovert. Scotch or whiskey? Oh, scotch every day. How does someone impress you? Honesty. All right. If not a recruiter, what would you be? Um, a CFO. <laughs> if you can be a CFO of any company for a day, which company would you choose? Oh, wow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plead the fifth to that. I've got too many clients that I'd be letting down and I didn't say them. So I'm going to take... Uh, <coughs> bless you. I'm going to plead. I couldn't possibly choose one. Every, every single okay. client that I work with will watch this and say, why the hell did you not say us? <laughs> All right. Um, ideal place for you to retire? Uh, Italy. If you could teleport yourself right now, where would you go and why? Uh, New York City today. All right. Number one item on your bucket list? Oh, um, Wow. Uh, I've got a goal of running a marathon in every state in the US. So, yeah, that's what I'll say. Cool. Who is your role model, personally or professionally? Sir Alex Ferguson. One thing that can make you 10x more productive? AI. Okay. Uh, AI. The last... AI. Well, no, it's one answer. AI. <laughs> All right. The last one. Describe yourself in three words. I would say driven to help. Very cool. Well, Dan, this has been an amazing show. Thank you for all of the clarity of thought and the data that you have shared. I think this is going to be quite helpful to all of our listeners. Appreciate your time. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Ravi. Thank you. Take care. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. We hope you'll find at least one nugget that is beneficial to you. As always, thanks for listening to Strategy of Finance. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on YouTube, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or our website, www.strategyoffinance.com. Your comments will make us better. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and share the word in your network so other people in the finance community can also benefit. Be sure to tune in next week for another engaging conversation. Until then, this is Frohit Agarwal, and remember to learn, grow, and inspire.